Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's, where the crew is on your team. Grab your shopping cart, make a quick snap, and move out of the pocket. Run an option to the demo station. Make an end around to the snacks, then find an eligible receiver to take you to the end zone. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman on a Thursday. Schedule is changing up here over the next few weeks, and in part this week because of our, the first ever early signing day. Did you survive it? I did. Sadly, our first podcast of the week didn't survive it. I think, in full disclosure, uh, we should give a big hat tip to our friend Barton Simmons from Two Four Seven Sports, who helped us preview it. But that was, that's the lost episodes. So, um, but we decided it would be a good idea to, to come on the back end of it and wrap up a lot of a very, very eventful first day. Stu, you know, it's interesting to me is that I think the big buzz that has been going to get taken out of the, the a real signing day or what's been known as the first signing day in uh, the first Wednesday in February, because you have nine of the top 10 recruits on 247's 2018 class already signed and i think it's going to be like 22 of 25 by the end of this week with terrace marshall the number 11 uh ranked recruit he's expected to sign on friday so um i don't know is it is it what has surprised you about how the the this week has gone well before i answer that bruce wasn't kidding we did record a full episode on monday that for technical reasons we'll never see the light of day uh, follow Barton Simmons, read his work. He had great coverage of early signing day and he spent an hour of his day on the phone with us and for, for not biggest surprise to me, you know, just, I didn't really know how this would shake out, what this would look like. And I mean, that's twofold one, you know, it, it did, like you said, it, it was more of the top players than I would have expected. If anything, I thought those would be the kind of players that would hold out until February also, what struck me, and I think this is a good thing, it just seemed orderly. It didn't seem as chaotic as the first Wednesday in February. There weren't, you know, I, I put on at some point on Twitter a list of you know, things we've seen in the past. A kid signs two NLIs or his mom refuses to sign it or, you know, ridiculous uh, press conferences with live animals and whatnot. You didn't see any of that. And I think because there wasn't uh, a deadline necessarily. I mean, it wasn't sign. You have to sign today. So there weren't, I mean, there were surprises. There were kids who people expected to sign at one school who signed somewhere else, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't just, it didn't, it just felt like a more chill version of signing day. Well, I think what added to that, Stu, is there was way less big stage TV coverage. Mm-hmm. You know, when I woke up on the West Coast, really the two places I saw that were, were, were telecasting about it were the Big Ten Network, props to them, and the SEC Network. And then after that, there was no big ESPN presence. There was a smaller show on ESPNU. Your colleague Tom Luganbill, who writes, covers a lot of things for you guys at the Athletic and the All-American, were, was, on, was on the show, but it wasn't like it was. I mean, I remember going back when I worked at ESPN towards the end of my time there, you know, we did a signing day show 
that was so packed with people from Charlotte. Urban Meyer at the time was at ESPN, you know, was there. Reese Davis was one of our main hosts. It was just a lot of people. And you just, I think because of the timing of it, you know, with it, a lot of people are still, you know, tied up with bowl responsibilities. And I also think some of the manpower at some of these places, obviously at ESPN and others, has been drained. And, and so there's less of that on recruiting. And I think because of that, you saw less, you know, of the spectacle nature of it. By the way, towards, you know, we were talking about like kind of some of the stuff that you roll your eyes at, what sometimes happens with, with these hat things and whatever. Uh, one kid who I was extremely impressed by, and granted, you can't tell a ton in a five-minute window on live TV, but um, I know K.J. Henry is a five-star rated recruit. He was really impressive if you watched how he handled his announcement. He seemed like a 25-year-old up there. And, you know, just in everything, how he handled it, it, live TV is not easy, especially in in that kind of setting where you're doing a talk back and balancing a big room. And, and so, you know, sometimes you see a guy like that and you're like, wow, I, you know, that's somebody you kind of pull for when you see how they seem like they, they're very thoughtful and have some perspective to it. Well, speaking of Tom Luganville, he did write something for the All American on Thursday morning, kind of breaking down the numbers based on the number of players who normally sign in a given year, which is about 2,800 across FBS, roughly 70% signed in the early period. Now, that tends to skew more, perhaps more toward the non-Power 5 conferences because the percentage there is Big 10, 75% full, Big 12, 68%, ACC, 67%, SEC, 59%, Pac-12, 53%. But as you said, it's not... uh, I it's thought it would be the five stars that, I, that would be holding out yeah. until February. It's basically Pat Sertan, who's a who's a cornerback whose dad played in the NFLs. A lot of people think is the top rated defensive back in the country. Uh, he's the one guy in the top ten who is not signed, and he's going to go to signing day, from what I've been told. But the rest of it is it's been like I said after after Friday, it's going to be twenty four of the top thirty. That is a huge number. There'll still be some drama, I'm sure, around signing day because you're going to have what you're going to have. Is, and it's already going on, a ton of assistant coaches who are moving on. And so I think that sometimes can affect recruiting. You're going to have the 10th assistant come up. That's going to happen uh, January 10th or 9th. So that's going to may, may impact things a little bit, just from an anecdotal standpoint. So a year ago, I spent signing day, the week of signing day added LSU. And because it was a new head coach, Ogeron was taken over from Les Miles. They felt like they were way behind on their 2017 and actually even though it was a year out they felt like they were way behind on their 2018 recruiting so they looked at the top 2018 kids and the top 2019 kids that's what they spent and were making contact with those coaches and that was a big part of those you know three days I was there and I gotta say most of the best players that we saw that those guys were like okay this is you know this guy may be ranked 23rd we think he's the number three guy. This guy may be ranked the eighth best uh, quarterback. We think he's the number one quarterback. Most of those guys went to either Georgia or Clemson. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. You know, at the time, Justin Fields was not that highly regarded. He got to Georgia. You you go down the list. I mean, there's a kid who, who signed with Clemson. Xavier Thomas was a IMG guy. I think they thought he might have been the best defensive player. I mean, he went to Clemson. Just you can go down the list of guys who ended up there: Jackson, Carmen, Cade. You know, Cade Mays. What Davo Sweeney and his staff have been doing is pretty remarkable, and how they have kind of flipped 
things in the last, really in the last five or six years, but especially now where it's like, if there's a stud player and Clemson's in the mix, they're really tough to beat. Well, I, you talk about surprises, and, and maybe it shouldn't be surprising at this point, but you know the two programs I think of as having dominated recruiting over the last however many years, Alabama, Ohio State. Signing day this year was not about those two schools, other than Ohio State losing some kids. It was about Clemson and Georgia. And Clemson, you know, I guess it shouldn't be surprising at this point. These kids they're recruiting have seen them play in back-to-back national championship games. They dominated, including most notably stealing a five-star tackle, Jackson Carmen, right out of Ohio State's backyard, out of Fairfield, Ohio, which is where I lived the first seven years of my life in that suburb of Cincinnati. And then Georgia. I mean, to me, Georgia was the story of the day because this is Kirby Smart. This is Nick Saban's protege. And he's now doing what Alabama has done for so many years, closing and just getting, I mean, everybody they wanted, they got, including some that I don't think Georgia fans even expected to get. Yeah, at the, towards the end of the day, they pulled a defensive back who was committed to the aforementioned Mr. Saban, and he ended up uh, going to Georgia. You know, the, the big thing that Justin Fields was expected because he had committed there for a while, but just the idea of you had consecutive years of fre- true freshman quarterbacks who are highly ranked. And then you get the the most highly touted of the, of all of them. Say, so you know what? Yeah, you may have a true freshman quarterback who's the all SEC freshman. He's leading you to the playoff. I'm going there anyway. And that competitive fire, you know, is a good selling point. And I think that, um, you know, the other thing is Sam Pittman was a fantastic hire by Kirby Smart a while back. I mean, just the idea of that O-line coach, what they've done on the O-line is a big statement, but also now what they did recruiting-wise on the O-line. You know, if I'm in the SEC East right now, I'm pretty nervous about what Kirby Smart is building there. Absolutely. Here's a stat for you from my Georgia friend. Five-star offensive lineman signed during Mark Rick's tenure, and he was there a long time. Three, five-star offensive lineman in Kirby Smart and Sam Pittman's first three classes, six. So clearly he identified that as the area they needed to get better at. They are dominating in that area. I I feel like I don't want to get too far ahead of myself before we actually see what they do in the playoff, but this feels like the start of something big. And And I guess the parallel I would give is when Saban got to Alabama, he had one rough year, as Kirby Smart did at Georgia, and then the second year they blew up and they have dominated ever since, basically. That's what I feel like Georgia's building. Now, Georgia's rival in the SEC East, Florida, also had a big day under its new coach on, uh, what day was that? (laughs) On Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. I mean, what is the one thing Florida needs? A quarterback. What did they get? A really good quarterback. Well, they need a lot. They need a lot. They've been bad on offense for a while. I think it goes beyond just a quarterback, you know? And look, we're going to see how, here's the thing with Florida. A lot of the guys they've recruited, they have been four- and five-star quarterbacks. They have not worked out. That's the problem. Felipe Franks was a bit, you know, he has as good an arm as anybody. And granted, who knows, maybe he will develop into it. But you look at some of these guys, and you can go back to, to John Brantley and the way after Tebow. They've had four-star, some five-star guys. Jeff Driscoll was the guy coming out of high school. You know, so we got we to gotta see. I think they, you know, I think what's hurt him is, the skill talent around them hasn't been very good, and they've had so many different coaches, and they're in so many different systems to learn. But don't you think that if you're going to Go. count on somebody to develop quarterbacks, Dan Mullen would be pretty high on the list? 
Well, he, ha- he definitely has a good reputation he from just, what he did with Dak Prescott and Nick Fitzgerald. He just needed to sign somebody in this class. And Emory Jones had been committed to Ohio State for a year. But it was pretty apparent in the last couple of weeks he was shopping around for somewhere else. I visited Florida and Florida State the last weekend. Hey, what do you make of the fact that Willie Taggart... So, my observation of early signing day is it is great so far. It is great for established coaches. It is particularly great for, like, the next level down. Mike Gundy was said it's the best thing that's ever happened in college football because now people can't poach his recruits. They, they're signed on the dotted line. So it's great for them. It's not great for coaches who just got hired. And Willie Taggart, you know, at one point I tweeted a screenshot of it. Florida State's class was ranked 64th in the country because they only had eight commits. Now, they did get a five-star DB later in the day, Wednesday, who had been committed to Ohio State. And this period's not over. More guys can sign in the next couple days, I'm sure. That class will move up. But, man, if you're Willie Taggart, you're really starting from behind. I wouldn't worry too much about Willie Taggart just because I know some of the guys he's assembled on the staff already are pretty really pretty well connected. And just the fact that he was able to beat Ohio State for a five-star kid out of L.A., no, out of the L.A. area, no less, I think speaks pretty well. Because I, I don't think they were really even you know in on that kid till about a week ago. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I wouldn't worry about the recruiting end of it, you know, at this point. And like you said, timing is is really tough. I mean, look, I feel for some of the from, from some of the staff that were in the middle of bowl prep and trying to juggle this as well. Um, the other the other way, our, poor, one, our, our friend Sonny Dykes, poor guy, <laughs> nothing about December 20th went well for him <laughs> in terms of signing oh, kids. That turnover fast. Yeah, oh. I'll. I'll say this, though. If you're an SMU fan and you like, oh, my God, this is his first game. You know, he, it wasn't his offense. It's like basically it gave him, a, you know, an open evaluation of the roster he has. I wouldn't worry about Sonny Dykes based on that day. I mean, it was a GA was calling the plays. It was just – but, you know, it was also signing day. They had to do that. that you know, I, it is. I can imagine how tough it is to balance those two things. You know what a great day and a great class was Penn State. Yeah. And, to show how far they've come, I had this stat, and this was Penn State was another one. Now, some of those kids didn't end up like when I was was at LSU. Penn State was in on a lot of those kids, and at the time, Justin Fields was going to be a Penn State quarterback, uh, and instead, obviously, he's ended up at Georgia. But the number of kids that they have gotten, you know, Micah Parsons, a lot of people think is a top pass rusher in the country, a top five defensive lineman out of Pennsylvania. He ends up there. So here's the number. And granted, you can you can read some into this of, of the circumstance and all the scandal that Penn State was dealing with before he showed up there. In the four years be- previous to James Franklin's arrival, and this encompasses obviously in the wake of the Sandusky news, but also in the aftermath of and scholarship productions, they had only had 17 combined four and five star recruits. In the four years since he's been there, they have 45. I mean, that is a huge jump. And what that means is, you know, just the talent base there, you know, for them to win the Big Ten a year and a half ago or whatever, you know, a year plus ago with what they inherited compared to now the personnel they're going to have is a is a big boost for the I think for the Big Ten East, especially. So two, four, sevens rankings as of Thursday morning, number one, Georgia, number two, Ohio State, Ohio State had been number one, but obviously things didn't go their way on signing day. I think it says something for the class that even after that, it's still number two in the country. Number three, Texas. I remember we had Tom Herman on signing day last year, and he was basically trying to apologize for all the misses. He just couldn't 
couldn't land anybody at the end of last year's cycle, but you knew his first full class, he was going to, it's just, it's the most predictable thing in recruiting. The first full class, when a new coach takes over at a big program like that, is always a monster class. They're number well, three. Also, Stu, you know what helps too is keep in mind who's their biggest rival in the state? Texas A&M. Well, Texas A&M had a coach that was basically, you know, they had recruited some good players, but the coach was still going to get canned. You knew that was coming. And so Jimbo Fisher doesn't have a ton of time to turn around, but all that, you know, all that momentum, it wasn't like, obviously Texas didn't have a really good season on the field. I think it was probably a little less than a lot of us thought it would be, but it certainly helped that Texas A&M was, was stuck in neutral you know, from a perception standpoint for the whole year. And I think I think UT really was able to clean up with that. Yeah, they signed, I believe, the top five players in the state of Texas, which is the kind of thing Mac Brown used to do all the time. You may hear my dog here in the next 20 minutes. People like dogs, too. You may hear all kinds of, I mean, it is like the, the least ideal circumstances to record a podcast in this house right now between construction and a dog who's whining. We had to It's good. People like, do- people like earlier, dogs. My Don't daughter was getting in her stroller. Anyway. Texas third, Penn State fourth, Miami fifth, Alabama, who's had the number one class seven years in a row, is at number six. Now, they only signed 17, which means they got time to, to add some guys to that class. How high do you think they end up? Maybe four. I don't think they're getting past one or two, and I'm not sure what uh, – Texas, I, you know, I just ran into Tom Herman a, like a couple weeks ago. And their number could be like 30 kids because they may back count some kids. So I don't think you're going to get past Texas. I think they could get to number four ahead of Penn State and Miami. But we'll see. You know, don't underestimate Nick Saban. Clemson also is at number seven, but with only 15 kids, 10 of whom are four or five stars. Number eight, Notre Dame. Number nine, Oklahoma. Number 10, Auburn. So what do we do now? I mean, between now and early February, I guess it's just going to be about the focus is going to be less on the team rankings because they're not going to change that much, I don't think, and more on these like few big-name individual kids who are still out there. I tell you what we're going to end up talking about is a lot about these staff shakeups that are going to happen, and I think you're going to see it in a different level than we've ever seen it this time of year. Part of it's because the 10th assistant's coming in, so you're going to get – it's not just going to be, hey, we got this analyst we're going to promote up, but it's going to affect other guys. I, w- I would expect to see some coordinators – make some some moves and i think that that'll impact some of this stuff a little bit um you know the other thing that's not been said much and i've I've said this for for a long time now the recruiting part of that why i was skeptical of an early signing period is you have way less of a clear picture academically on these kids and so you're gonna have a lot of kids who are very borderline who are going to sign and they may not get in. And I think that affects how this could play out too, you know, and you talk to some coaches on the lower end of the food chain of this and they're like, some of these kids are going to get left out whether they're going to qualify or not, or end up going to junior college. And so don't be surprised if you have thinner classes because of this. What do you say we hit the mailbag? Before we do that, Stu, I got one other recruiting story kind of to bounce off you. This story is out of uh, one of the K-State beat writers who is covering the team and said, Bill Snyder says he remains in the process of deciding whether he'll return for another season. Won't make up his mind until after the Cactus Bowl. The Cactus Bowl is in about five days, by the way, as we tape. And I'm not going to say whether I I know he's going to leave or not leave. But if you're a K-State, you're like, man, we're dealing with the early signing period and we got a head coach 
you know, who's a legend here, named the stadium after him. But this is really awkward timing. I mean, what'd you make when you saw that story? It's a heck of a segue, my friend. Did you already look at what the first mailbag question was? Uh, I did, in fact, yes. Okay. I was surprised because I could have sworn that the school had put out a statement or somebody had put out a statement that he was returning for 2018 like a week ago. So apparently that is not decided in any way. He's very much up in the air. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of puts things in flux. But the bowl game's not that far away. I mean, clearly he's going to have to make a decision one way or the other pretty quickly so they know what they're going to do for February. One other note on that. You know who's pounding on the door to get back into coaching, I think? That'd be Brett Bielema. I could see Brett Bielema at, K- at uh, K-State. He, ha- he worked there under Bill Snyder. I think if I was a K-State fan, I'd be like, yeah, come on in. If I was a Big 12 person, I would love to have him back in the conference. Okay, so with that, let's get to the mailbag. Uh, let me start with Jason. Guys love the pod. What on earth is K-State going to do once Bill Snyder decides he's done? I fear they may become the North Korea of college football with an unqualified and possibly incapable successor inheriting the job from his father. Say it isn't so. Uh, I'm going to say it isn't so. I don't think Sean Snyder, that's the person he's referencing, who's the special teams coordinator and is a good special teams coordinator for what it's worth. But I don't think as much as Bill wants it, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, and they say Sean has basically almost been a de facto head coach at times over the last couple of years, that he's running the day-to-day of the program. But, you know, if you're the AD, if you're the president, you have to do what's best for the program. You can't just do it to appease Bill Snyder as, as important as a person as he has been to Kansas State. If Bill Snyder wanted to kind of force their hand and make the son the, his son the coach, he would resign in, like, June. So they really wouldn't have much choice to promote him. But I think he's not going to do that to them. So, you know, I think you're right. I mean, look, he's talking openly about it right now, whether he's going to come back or not. You mentioned uh, Bielema as a possible fit. Jim Levitt has that out in his contract at Oregon, specifically for Kansas State, but he also just signed. I mean, $1.7 million to be the D.C. If Bill Snyder retired next week, would... They turn around and hire him. Brent Venables has also been, you know, often linked to that job. There's a lot of good – they'd have a lot of good candidates. Yeah. I think Brent Venables' son just committed a sign to go play at, at, for him at Clemson too, by the way. Um, well, there you go. Maybe we should just stop the annual speculation about Brent Venables. Yeah. He, he does such a good job and, and you know, obviously he, he played there. I think it's. I think if he wants to be a head coach at some point soon, he can get to be a head coach. I don't know if that's the spot. Um, so we shall see. Uh, Let me ask you this next one from Ryan in Wisconsin. Where do you think Brett Bielema, Gary Anderson, and Kevin Sumlin end up a year from now? I think Brett Bielema, and I wrote this about a month ago for SI, I think he has a real shot to be the next guy at K-State. Uh, I think he could replace a legend and have no problem doing it. And so I could see that. Um, Gary Anderson, I said this the other day, I think he, his best bet is going to be to be somebody's coordinator, go off to the NFL. You know, he just the way he left Oregon State, I think, is a tough sell for any AD. It's been reported a bunch of places now that Sonny Dykes has interest in him. We'll see if that happens for him to be the defensive coordinator there. Kevin Sumlin, I think, will end up on TV for the year after that. I don't know. The, as bad as Arizona State 
has gone in the last couple of, you know, basically since they pulled the plug on Todd Graham, you know, with everything that's gone on there, it wouldn't shock me if Herm Edwards is such a spectacular mess there for in a year, maybe they clean house. The only thing that makes me say they, they would give him more time is Bobby Hurley has been a really good hire for the basketball side of things under AD Ray Anderson. So I think, you know, people there are probably going to, you know, I don't, I don't think anything would happen crazy like that in a year, but who knows? It's well, if so, Herm Edwards so were out in a year, so so would Ray. I mean, Ray Anderson has, has put so much, has just put it all in on this kind of bizarre hire and unorthodox situation that if it were that spectacular failure, I would have to think he would be gone too. Yeah, so some of the other jobs that come open um, next year, and you know, we've speculated a little bit about Illinois, you know, already ahead of the, you know, ahead of it next year. I just don't know what job Kevin Sumlin would go, yeah, I want to go work there. You know, wouldn't surprise me if he had some interest from NFL teams because he's had it before also this this winter. I do like the idea you had recently of Bielema ending up at Illinois, putting him right back in the same division as Wisconsin where he – it didn't work in the SEC, but clearly he showed over a considerable period of time he can win in the Big Ten and in particular in the Big Ten West. So, But Sumlin – Someone's a guy who, I, you know, he's respected for sure, but the longer he stays out of it, the harder it's going to be. Like, it's not like people are going to be a year from now lining up the way they were for Chip Kelly this year. So, you know, his options, I don't know. I mean, I frankly was surprised he didn't, I thought he would get something in this cycle. He was mentioned for ASU, he was mentioned for UCF. I don't think happened. he, I don't, uh, the, the ASU thing, and I, tweeted about this was not real like he was not a candidate there right. they were all all they were around herm edwards. Get yeah yeah I mean, and, get, um, an nfl guy herm edwards yeah. yeah but the ucf one i don't think he wanted he was not ready to jump back into that so i think that's why that happened that way but um you know who knows a lot can change between a, in a year from now bobby pennell writes with the three top three teams clearly on a different level than the next tier in terms of resume, who would have been in the championship game if we were still in the BCS model? This is right up your wheelhouse, Stu. Yeah, it's a great question. And the BCS rankings, they always was pretty much aligned with the AP and coaches polls. And the AP and coaches polls, as we know, reward teams who lost least recently. So I think it's pretty clear that it would have been Clemson and Oklahoma in the championship game with Georgia as the odd man out just because Georgia lost to Auburn in November, whereas I think the Syracuse, Clemson-Syracuse game may have even been late September. Certainly the Oklahoma-Iowa State game was very early in the season. So those teams would have worked their way back up. Georgia would have had a harder time working its way back up, even with the SEC championship win. So that would have been one of those situations that was just, people would be so furious. It's just, why can't we have a bigger playoff why is why are those two you know twelve and one teams in but twelve and one Georgia is not and so I bring that up just to say just to point out yet again what a difference it made just to expand to two more teams I mean the controversy this year about Alabama and Ohio State were two teams that frankly I don't think anybody felt particularly passionate about either way why are these teams even having to play for the national championship whereas that one would have felt like somebody legitimately got left out yeah and some years look some years two is ideal. Some years there it isn't. You know, there's a been there have been some years when you didn't think anybody should have been, you know, a, a number two team to challenge a clear number one. So 
it's never going to be a perfect system with the structure that college football has. Uh, hey, Stuart and Bruce, I really enjoy the Audible. Keep up the good work. However, I do have an issue with your recent discussion about group of five teams making the playoff. You guys made it seem like a group of five team had no shot at the playoff, but I disagree. I can think of three teams in the BCS era. Urban Meyer's Utah team in 2004 and Gary Patterson's TCU teams in 09 and 2010, they would have had legitimate shots. As a fan of a group of five team, I would not like the idea of Sean Frazier's proposed group of five playoff. Also, what if you do get a team, such as the teams I recently mentioned, or Houston, had they run the table last year, that does have a legitimate shot at, the, at that spot? Are they just not eligible to win the title? Steve Nitz. Good question, Steve. Good question. I mean, to the latter part, yeah, if you were to do a group of five playoff, I would assume then those teams no longer get put into the pool for the real playoff. Because how could, you know, you can't just say, oh, we're going to have a group of, we're going to determine the best group of five team. But if one of them is good enough to make the playoff, then they're not, you couldn't do it that way. Okay, so to his point, yes, you know, it was a different era. And I mean, TCU in 2009 Actually, maybe both years was in the top four. Yeah, when they played in the Rose Bowl, they were in the top four in the BCS standing. So, you know, if you're going by that, then yes, those teams would have been in the top four in that system. So you, I totally understand why you would say they had a shot at the playoff. But I think we've seen that this new system, this new way of ranking teams with a committee that really, truly emphasizes strength of schedule it hasn't had that much of a change at the top. We've talked about that recently. You know, how was this year's order any different than it would have been in the BCS? But it has had a big effect on Group of Five. The teams just aren't getting up there as high. I mean, in the Paul era, remember the Hawaii team with Colt Brennan? They played the worst schedule, I think, in the country that year. But they were undefeated. And if you went undefeated, you just eventually, just out of sheer attrition, you were going to move up to a certain point. Whereas this committee has shown no hesitation to just leave them out. I think Marshall, the first year, similar situation. They ended up losing late in the season, but they were a 10-0, and 11-0, and they weren't even in the top 25. UCF undefeated this year, couldn't crack the top 10. This committee just treats those teams differently. They're more, they're more holding them accountable for the schedule strength. So no, I don't think, I just don't think they do have a shot in this system Houston would have been a great litmus test if that team. I think Houston would have had a shot because they had two things going for them that most of these teams usually don't have. One, they had the momentum of beating a big brand school in a in a real bowl the year before, and they did it handily against Florida State. And then two, they had the non conference schedule juice where they had Oklahoma, they beat them, and they had Louisville, they crushed them, and those were two really good wins. The problem was. They didn't hold up the rest of it, and they were pretty mediocre in conference play. I mean, when you think about it, the number four team that year was Washington, who played nobody out of conference. I could Mm -hmm. totally see people saying, well, you should reward Houston, who went out out and played Oklahoma and Louisville over Washington. I I honestly have no idea how that would have played out. But, you know, that would have – if it's going to happen, it's going to have to be that exact formula. Establish yourself the year before, which UCF didn't have going for it this year. You know, get, build up legitimacy before the season even starts. Then beat big name non-conference teams. You know, Maryland is not which UCF that. didn't have that yeah. either. Even if they had played the Georgia Tech game, it wouldn't have been that. And be undefeated, and 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 then hope that the other you know power conference champs are as flawed as they were this year. That that to me would be the formula. Speaking of Group of Five, Bruce, our old friend Jason Garluski 
is intrigued by the Group of Five playoff, and he says, if we were the committee of the Group of Five playoff, what would your four-team tournament field be, and how would they be seated? Well, I would have the two teams that played in the AAC title game. That would be the aforementioned uh, UCF squad of Scott Frost and Memphis. Uh, then I think you got to put, and this is a little biased now because I just saw Lane Kiffin's team put 1,000 points on Terry <laughs> Bowden. But you would put them in. And the team, I think, that deserves a spot in the top 25, and don't, I don't want to hear any otherwise from you, is Troy. Neil Brown's team won 11 games. They won their bowl game. You know, looked impressive doing it. And they have the best win of any of these teams. They went to LSU and beat the Tigers. What, is, what did Troy and Alabama have in common? Uh, their best win of the season was against LSU. Okay. Well, so you threw a, uh, threw me for a loop there. I just assume I've assumed all along that this group of five playoff idea would be conference champions. Would be the would be four. You know, so you'd have the champ of the American, the champ of the Mountain West, the champ of probably Conference USA, and then either MAC or Sun Belt. It would just be just like the other. Uh, somebody's getting left out. Or somebody's getting left out. But you're saying you want four best, even if three of them are in the American. That's what I seem to be saying. Yeah, because yeah, if that were the case, I think it would be UCF, Memphis, USF, and um, I think for my fourth, Troy. I'm going to go with Boise. Troy. No, Boise. But, uh, hey, that's you know what? Boise looked really good against Oregon, so that's yeah. okay. Yeah, so, but that leaves out Troy, that leaves out to a really good Toledo team, and it leaves out Lane's team. So you know what that means? Got to go to eight. I can live with it. Um, I, can, I, I could we're running low on time here. I just I wanted to mention real quick that we asked people if we talked too much about the Heisman. And I think this comment, resoundingly, they said we do. Guy Mouton, yes, for the love of God, you talk too much about the Heisman. So we're going to have to take that into consideration next year, Bruce, as we go through the season. The, the, the listeners have spoke. They don't want to hear so much about that. Okay. All right. I mean, I know the readers, the reader numbers indicate otherwise. Otherwise, but. yeah. Well, we probably beat it to death a little bit. Yeah. Uh, just a quick programming note. You know, I know you're used to getting these on Mondays, but with the next two Mondays being Christmas Day and New Year's Day, and of course with the playoff games, uh, our next two podcasts will be later in the week, hopefully in person together uh, from the Rose Bowl and then from the championship game. So have a great holiday, everybody. We'll see you next time. Roll the credits. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to the All-American Podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me. Stu at SL Mandel and subscribe to the All-American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash All-American. So come on, get over here.